everyone and welcome to the 37th Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news. Nothing can stop the chat. 37 shows. Um, joining me on this one, first of all, John Linneman. Rich, yes, 37 shows in uh, some crazy stuff that happened on the way to get to this 37. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Alex Battaglia. Nothing stops this trade, Rich. Nothing stops DF Direct. I'm, uh, I'm ready. Let's do it. It's unstoppable. Uh, okay, let's let's do the first topic. So, literally, just a few seconds ago, I said that literally nothing could stop the chat. And, uh, <laughs> Lies. And uh, yeah, remember when I said that? Tricks. <laughs> I lied. Uh, because um, this week we were um, basically, I think our YouTube channel was <laughs> high. I mean, we're laughing about it now. It wasn't funny at the time. Our YouTube channel was hijacked by Russian <laughs> crypto scammers. <laughs> <laughs> pretending to be Elon Musk uh, um, and uh, rebranding Digital Foundry as SpaceX. So, you know, there was this uh, fascinating moment where we thought, hey, maybe there's been some kind of surprise acquisition here that not even we were aware of. Um, I don't think we need to go in too much into the into the kind of way. Actually, I do think we need to discuss how it happened, perhaps not naming names as to whose account was hacked because it looks as though it could have happened to anybody, anyone. But John, what's, what did happen? As far as we can tell, uh, somehow something got in, managed to disable two-factor authentication on the account uh, that was being used to manage the channel. And the account itself that got hit was only used for that. Like It wasn't like for email or anything like that. It was literally just like a Google account just for that. Uh, and it's one of several. And I guess the, the thing that we couldn't figure out and talking with security guys as well is like, it almost seems like they somehow triggered it as a trusted device so that they could bypass two-factor authentication. So, but I, I am not a security expert at all um, in terms of the way this stuff works. So it was fascinating and bizarre and and we kind of did a bunch of investigation stuff in the background to look into it so you can at least see what was going on it's just a little bit strange and, and concerning essentially when uh the the channel was hijacked there was a kind of initial moment of well is this actually us what happened and um uh yeah basically we worked quickly to lock out whoever it was that had hijacked the channel and it which actually turned out to be quite easy and then um, things were sort of back on track and we got Alex's uh, Forza Horizon 5 PC uh, video out. Um, but then like five hours later, uh, YouTube decided just to uh, suspend the channel and um, it was just deleted <laughs> to all intents and purposes from YouTube. You know, and it, was, it was sort of quite bizarre that when you actually search for Digital Foundry, you just saw a bunch of hate videos. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> digital Foundry shilling for this. Digital Digital Foundry hates this. I and, love that there uh, was there was a sequence of videos <laughs> that was like claiming that we were shilling for Microsoft, then PlayStation, then Nintendo, uh, all in a row, all from different channels. It was quite funny <laughs> when you see it presented that way. <laughs> so, um, as, as, well, at that point, we had to try and get hold of the of the channel again, and we do have. Um, Google reps, but um, I think we were down for about 18 hours in all. And um, 
Uh, I still think that there are big issues here in terms of just how big Google and YouTube is and the fact that you just don't have anybody. There's nobody to speak to. I mean, we've got like 1.19 million subscribers. There's no... You, 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 there's no hotline. There's no sort of phone number where we can call up somebody and say, hey, look, can you quickly take a look at this? Because uh, everything should be sorted now. You didn't need to delete the channel. Uh, could you please put it back? But there's no method that we had to actually address somebody directly. So we tried all manner of things. We Obviously, we did talk to the YouTube rep and um, uh, we were assured that stuff would happen. And then um, I just thought, well, let's go through the normal channels. We tried the uh, YouTube um, help thing that's on Twitter. They sent me a form to fill in that requires information you can only get with the YouTube channel, which we've been locked out of. Um, and it was a form for, hey, my channel has been hijacked. What do I do next? Well, yes, the channel was hijacked, but we re-secured it. And the only hijacking at that point was from Google. So um, that was kind of bizarre. Then there was a thing, another form you could fill in um, where you explained how you've been locked out of your services. And uh, they thought that I'd been locked out of my Google uh, account. And they said, you haven't been logged out of your Google account. And it's right. like, oh, yeah, it's, I know, because I wrote to you about YouTube. And um, yeah, it's just basically utterly bizarre. So, you know, I'm not looking for special treatment compared to smaller channels here. But the whole concept that, you know, when we did actually get to the correct form, it says, yeah, we, we might have something sorted out in the next two business days. You know, it's like... To me, it feels like Google and their services have, are perhaps just too big at this point in terms of what they can realistically handle, right? It's like steering like four, four Titanics duct tape together uh, where it's like, you know, you need to, to do this stuff. You can't just rely on algorithms and such. Like you actually need people to do this work. And, I, you know, they have a lot of employees, but it sounds like there's probably just not enough to go around perhaps to handle all of this stuff because there's so many channels on YouTube anyway. Uh, like it's got to be very, very, very difficult in the back end. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that we still have no idea how it happened. We have no visibility. So we're kind of still semi-locked down. That was the weird thing is the account that got hacked was also a managed account. So that the account itself actually had less, slightly less rights than just a normal Google account anyway. So like the whole thing is like this web of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It could have been a lot worse bearing in mind the permissions that a manager does have. I mean, crikey. Didn't this happen to like other channels? Like uh, I think Hardware Unboxed or something had something like this happen not too long ago. And They mentioned that, yeah. And some others as well. Like it seems to be happening more and more. So it's kind of, and it's often crypto scams. So, uh... yeah, at least, you know. I mean, you know, things are going to be all right, but um, in terms of the short-term impacts, I mean, traffic has just flatlined, really. Um, Alex's uh, Forza Horizon video was trending to be like uh, like top top three, and it kind of petered out. Um, and it's going to require quite a lot of top-tier content to actually get us back on the trend where, that we were on just by trundling along, which is kind of frustrating. I don't really know what else there is to say about this because there's no learnings from this whatsoever. There's nothing we could have done to have um, uh, to have made the 
situation any easier. There's nothing more in terms of security we could have done. Now, the only thing that I did notice is that we have a pretty good community that uh, we learned of this immediately. Uh, I mean, when you're just sitting there, you're not just like looking at the channel and refreshing it all day. Other people told us about it. And then after the fact, of course, other people offered their help and things like that. Uh, so we're, I'm very grateful for all those who wrote to us and those who also offered help in any sense. So thank you. Yeah, and also all of the people who responded to the tweets and tried to put pressure on YouTube and Google to actually do something. Um, I really appreciate that. At least we weren't called like NFT something. Yeah, they thankfully. SpaceX instead. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're going to be hijacked by uh, somebody attaching yourself to a prestige brand, I, I, I guess it <laughs> could, be, could be worse. Could be. Okay, look, let's move on. Well, let's talk about uh, another hacking, another race of hackings that has happened this week. Uh, PlayStation 5 console is barely a year old. Um, we had two exploits revealed this week. Uh, number one, the first one that came out was from a hacker with a established track record of legit hacks uh, called The Flow, who did um, essentially showed a PS5, a retail PS5 seemingly on the latest firmware uh, with the debug settings menu enabled. And um, this is set, oh, and then he used PS5 share, uh, you know, the whole network infrastructure to prove it was running on the latest firmware, the latest retail firmware, accessing the retail network, which you can't do on a debug console. And he used that to share the settings menu. And uh, this is the first indication we have that basically PlayStation 5 has been cracked. People are able to, to adjust the firmware. The second hack uh, came from another legit outfit <laughs> uh, fail overflow who have previously hacked uh playstation 4 of course and three and, uh, right um i think they'd had something to do with three but they also under the hacker alias of team tweezers <laughs> they uh, hacked the wii or the wii u i believe the wii that wide open wii. <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm interested in what you think of this john <laughs> Um, well, I would say this is, this was always going to be kind of an, an inevitability, right? Like consoles are, hacked, well, is it, right? is, is it though? Xbox one still hasn't been hacked. Well, do you need to really? So there's a question but, with that console, right? So this, this gets, this also gets into well, first of all, that is interesting. You say that because there's, there's kind of two things people want to do with a hacked console. There's, they want to run homebrew software and then there's, they want to pirate games. Uh, Xbox series consoles at least and possibly i guess one as well if i recall they actually already have a way to run homebrew software right it's like emulators and such which i think instantly reduces the appeal of that like not to say that people wouldn't be trying to it to do it um but i think you know that satisfies the need for a lot of people and the emulation on there especially on series is really good so it's quite an interesting thing that you can do out of the box so already there's more of a reason to try to hack the PS5 if people want to do similar things. And then secondly, of course, there's always the piracy thing. Uh, and, you know, I say this without knowing what the software side is like for either company, but knowing that Microsoft's history lies in OS development and all that, and I know people like to poke fun at Windows from time to time, but, you know, Windows is used for so many things. They build servers, they build this stuff. Um, you know, Microsoft security knowledge is probably 
ahead of Sony, I would say, just out of necessity, right? So it wouldn't surprise me that the Xbox would be a little more difficult to hack open. But again, I can't say for sure because I'm not the one doing this. So, um, But, you know, on PS5, I mean, it, it'll be interesting if they can sort of break it open to allow for homebrew because I would like to see what's possible on that front. Uh, but I'm never, I'm never a fan of the piracy stuff. So I don't know what kind of impact that'll have. I mean, the PS4 has been cracked open for a while now and that didn't really have an impact. And I mean, PlayStation two was, and one for that matter, had piracy very early on and for a long time. And they became some of the most, uh, popular successful consoles of all time. Right. So I think it won't have a huge impact on that front, but I don't know. It is, it is curious and something I think we should continue to watch. Yeah. I mean, um, there is, well, as you say, there's two angles to this, the homebrew and the piracy side of things. First of all, the flow and fail overflow have no interest in, uh, commercially exploiting these hacks and commercial exploitation is usually associated with piracy. So there's the whole team executor thing on switch um, where basically a open source exploit was monetized and turned into a form of piracy. And they're now, uh, uh, as uh, Vader would say, p- paying the price for their lack of vision. And um, it could be Palpatine, actually, who said that. But anyway, regardless, <laughs> regardless um, yeah, basically, these guys have got no interest in enabling piracy. But usually when you're talking about um, opening up a system, um, it does usually lead to piracy. And if you look at what happened on PlayStation 4, uh, this um, the reason I think some people are possibly excited by the debug settings menu being open is that this allows you to install um, packages. So if you can decrypt a game, repackage it as unsigned debug code, then you've got a game um, that you didn't pay for. Well, so there, there's a, there's another exciting thing to that that I you know, remembered, like if you look at like on PlayStation Vita, for instance, with that cracked open, uh, so many homebrew tools have been developed to essentially enhance games. So obviously you can overclock the system, but there's tools to allow you to increase the resolution of games uh, and change other values about them. There's ways to unlock the frame rate. And I found, you know, going through some of my Vita library on there with those settings, there's actually a, a lot you can do with the games to sort of solve some of the original deficiencies especially once you overclock, you can just boost that resolution. And, and sometimes I'm like, why would they have reduced this in the first place? Like why was persona four sub native resolution when it's, it seems it's perfectly fine at native resolution. You, you know, it's just, there, there's some interesting decisions that developers made that homebrew essentially allows you to conquer or solve. And that's great. And that's the kind of stuff I would like to see as well on PS5. Yeah, I mean, we've seen stuff on the Switch, uh, which has been blown wide open, you know, frame rate unlocks, resolution tweaks. Uh, With The Witcher 3, there were mods that were actually um, added into the full game because they seem to work pretty well on the the patch side of things. Also, I find that this stuff can be useful for long-term preservation in a weird way because companies are usually not that interested in preserving their stuff we found. Uh, in many ways, and this at least ensures that things like patches and tweaks and mods and all this stuff can be possible years down the line when PlayStation 5 is abandoned uh, or a long distant memory, right? Uh, I think that stuff is really important 
And I, you know, I, I think it's, it's ultimately a good thing. And I would argue that even having full, full wide open piracy, like the Nintendo switch as well, uh, it certainly hasn't ruined the success of that machine. If you look at the numbers, right? So I guess so, but it is undesirable. I think the other it thing is undesirable. To, I agree. To bear, <laughs> to bear in mind with this one is that, um, First of all, I don't foresee any public release in the short term. And secondly, I think there is actually a bounty program where Sony pays something like $10,000 per exploit that is reported to them, uh, which which does a pretty good job of actually stopping people from wanting to share this stuff. I mean, if you exploited PlayStation 5 and you could get $10,000 for it, then why share the exploit with anyone else? You know, it kind of just doesn't make sense. I think that's actually a pretty good strategy there. So I think on the one hand, it's eventually this knowledge will permeate into the um, into the wider uh, public domain, I suspect. Uh, but it will require you being on a much older firmware. And I think most people will want to stay on the latest firmware to play the latest games. So, yeah, and it's not as if, I mean, one thing that did sort of comment that, came up that did sort of annoy me a bit is it's like hey it's easier to hack playstation 5 than it is to buy one no it isn't <laughs> you know i've bought several playstation 5s i could go to facebook marketplace now and buy one uh scalped so yes it is significantly easier to buy a playstation 5 than it is to hack, hack it so let's stop that line of discussion straight away but there's not really too much more to say about this, I think. It's just going to be interesting to see what the disclosures are. Fail Overflow typically like to present their work, and um, they also typically don't tend to release until the firmware is well out of date. So there's not really much utility to do with it. But, you know, I think another thing that is useful, again, it goes back to the modding side of things. If we go back to stuff like, uh, say, for example, Lance McDonald's work on on um, from software games they're all based on um, these exploits in in some way shape or form because um, you know he runs those patches you know the bloodborne 60 fps patch was developed on um to, to run on exploited systems unless you've got a debug machine there's nothing more you can do with it so yeah interesting stuff happening there and um i'll be keeping an eye on it but you know it used to be the case that when a playstation when a console uh, PS3 being hacked, you know, it was a major headline because, uh, you know, people like Geohot would release the hack and, you know, all hell would break loose. But I think there's a certain level of responsibility attached to release these days. So kind of more of a level of curiosity that they managed to do this in a year, um, as opposed to anything that's actually of utility to the user in the here and now. Next story, um, hopefully we're going to be taking a look at this at some point because we're coming up to release very, very soon. Uh, IGN First had some new footage of the Halo Infinite campaign. Obviously, we've talked about it, and whenever we do talk about it, people seem to be unhappy for some reason. Um, but um, I'll tell you what I thought about it. I watched the video this morning. It seems to me that it's not as much of an open world as, as it we might have been led to believe the open world actually looks relatively small and contained. Something else that seemed new there was that um, it seems that a lot of the story beats happen in sort of dungeon style bases, uh, which is kind of new information to me. Uh, on the other hand, um, 
the open world is the open world and they said it looks really small. It also seems to be only one biome. So I'm still confused as to the initial engine reveal, which showed a lot more and that showed a lot more interesting stuff. Um, is there anything here to add to your video, Alex? I mean, I thought the, the IGN footage looked visually more interesting than what we saw in the video they put out for the campaign overview. It just looked it, it looked a little bit more visually dense because they showed off like areas with more trees and things like that and not just like open terrain. I thought that was interesting. Um, but uh, just kind of the discussion of the way the open world sections play out and a variety of other things, just, you know, I'm going very cautiously and not super optimistic into the Halo campaign at the moment. Uh, I'll play it through and I'll give it my stuff and I'll probably talk about a lot of the visual features in the eventual video that I do on it. Uh, kind of want to talk about like effects work and things like that since we haven't really talked about that uh, on that yet. Um, but you know, we'll see. I, I really do wish though that the that they showed off this campaign in a different way uh, than that overview video back then. And I have almost feel like uh, it would have been probably better off to show off the way they did it through IGN or Game Informer. What did you make of the actual open world bits, John? Because from my perspective, I wasn't hugely excited by that. And, you know, I think the, the main thing they showed was like, a, a you know, a series of camps that you need to liberate, which is like, isn't isn't that like the number one open world gaming trope? Honestly, though, this I thought the video did a pretty nice job of sort of... Uh, easing some of my concerns but i mean the thing is is it's really difficult to say based on this still but the open world does at least seem to be somewhat constrained and i'm even though it has some of those tropes i am at least hoping that it perhaps follows more along the crisis style in terms of you have a pretty large space maybe it's only connected in this one unlike crisis but it's narrow. I mean, after all, you are on a halo, so there's only a certain amount of width <laughs> available. So I, I don't expect it to be exactly like Far Cry or anything. Uh, I almost wonder if that original campaign video was specifically designed to appeal to those people. Because let's be clear, Far Cry 6, I think, sold a lot. <laughs> so uh, we don't like it, but uh, people do seem to like that style of game. But I don't think that this is necessarily one of those. They showed enough like indoor uh, action and cutscene stuff. And uh, there's enough here that makes it seem like perhaps there is just a, a straight line through sort of the story and, and general experience. And then there's stuff along the side that you can maybe engage in if you want. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm remaining. That's basically if it ever gets to a point where there's just like, here's a base camp and now you have to go clear 10 things and then pick up 10 other things and go to 10 point, you know, stuff like that, that would be bad. But I don't think that we've seen anything quite like that yet. Yeah, I think the worst thing would be if you know, uh, Master Chief has to find a particular NPC, but that NPC will only help you if you carry out 10 tasks first and uh, See, repair oh, a spaceship or something. Oh, yes. I hate that. that. That's the stuff that's... Games are expensive to make, and you can really see, like, they're like, well, we need to make long games because that's what people want. Not necessarily. But you can see where all these games, like Assassin's Creed and Far Cry, are just stretched, right? They make all this stuff, but they're like, well, we got to make this extra long. So they just stretch out all the stuff... You spend so much time walking, doing busy work, completing checklists, filling meters uh, that 
the meat of the game is spread out really far. I'm not again. I, I'm, I'm just I'm just loving this idea of Master Chief having a checklist. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful that that's <laughs> I mean... not the case. And I another thing to keep in mind though that that does at least fill me with some hope is, uh, so I still like some open world games, and a lot of the ones that I've enjoyed tend to have good locomotion, like the the act of moving around the world feels good. Uh, and Halo has always kind of excelled in that. Just driving around is fun. So like if they nail like say the Warthog physics or something. Uh, just moving around the world can be fun because the driving in Far Cry, it's not fun. Uh, walking around in Assassin's Creed is definitely not fun. <laughs> it's not fun at all. Uh, but this actually could be, you know what I mean? Like just, so I'm kind of excited about that aspect. So I, I, no judgment can be passed yet, but I am intrigued by this and, and optimistic. And I actually think it looks nice too. Like, um, you know, I, I see still some issues here, but I think it's a, it's a, an attractive and handsome game. Uh, it looks clean and sharp. Uh, we'll have to say, look, look more closely to see what all they're doing, but I don't know. I, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm at least excited still. I'm very excited to try it. Just one last thing I want to say is from a story perspective, it's very interesting how they kind of just uh, straight up drop all of the storylines attached with Halo 5 for the most part. Uh, other than, I guess, a little bit of the Cortana stuff is still in there, of course. Uh, but it was just interesting to see how this seems like a, a very hard reaction uh, to Halo 5's campaign. Which, that campaign, I, I always thought that campaign was fine. Like, I, I did enjoy it. It's, it's definitely my least favorite campaign, but I still enjoyed playing it. Uh, it's just the story is weird. <laughs> and I'm glad that they seemingly kind of walked that back. So, I don't know. I... The thing is, like, I, I'm excited just because of how much I've enjoyed Halo in the past. And I, <laughs> there's something about fall weather, you know, like this time of year and Halo coming out that gets me really excited. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still interested. Fingers crossed we'll see it soon. But I think, you know, um, every time we look at it, we seem to get a bit more optimistic about it. But we're still slightly concerned about the whole open world element to it. And, um, but as you say, John, it's on a halo. It can't be that open. <laughs> no, and, it, and it's not, you know, and that's the thing. Open world design is not just about the map size. It's about what they make you do. It's, it's the checklist syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to our next topic. Sad one, this, because I've just so, I've been so excited about this. Uh, Steam Deck delayed by two months. It's going to start shipping February 2022. It's also been rumors that PlayStation 5 uh, supplies are being more limited, more curtailed, all down to this global uh, chip shortage. Uh, any thoughts on this? I mean, I'm not really sure what we can add to this, uh, except to say that, well, you know, the Steam Deck is is the sort of big hardware unknown for us at the moment. I mean, we could go and visit a developer who's got one, I suppose, just to get some answers. <laughs> I did talk to somebody who, who's been using one, by the way. Oh, yeah. And the, mm -hmm. the big impression I got from it was that it's really big and it's really heavy uh, for a handheld. Like compared to, like, say, the Switch, it feels like holding a like a, a cinder block. Uh, not that it's unusable or anything, just like everybody that, that I've talked to that's used it has kind of remarked that, man, this thing weighs a lot. <laughs> so it does seem to be a very big, beefy, portable system. Uh, to say the least, but we kind of got that impression, I think, from just looking at visuals of it online. 
Uh, it is a big machine. And there's a lot of horsepower there for a handheld. I am curious why it is two months and not three. It just seems like from our perspective, since we don't have any insight in it, it just feels like an arbitrary number. What exactly is being accomplished in two months that is not accomplished in December? They're talking about supply chains. I mean, they're talking about the fact that components can't get from A to B in order to create a, a, a final steam deck as such. So I suspect that's why it's an arbitrary number, simply because it's kind of like they've got a bit of wiggle room in there. But realistically, that is when they expect to ship and um, they want to get the unit out there as soon as possible. I mean, I really want to go hands on. I really want to see what it's capable of. Um, benchmarking, I mean, here's the thing with these kind of devices. We're going to be seeing a bunch of benchmarks, right? And I do obviously want to benchmark it myself. But the whole point of this kind of device is that, you know, you shouldn't be doing a kind of one size approach, one size fits all approach to running games on this thing. You're going to need to use optimized settings. And uh, there's actually a uh, presentation today uh, on the the time of filming where they're going to be addressing developers about how to develop for the deck. And this is the approach that I actually wanted to see, which is that, you know, developers will take a look at this machine. They will possibly tailor their code to run effectively on it. And that's, that's good stuff. And I really want to see what we get from that. I mean, there have been some things, you know, some experiences that we've seen already, for example, you know, Doom Eternal running at 60 frames per second on it. Um, I don't mind if it's a, medium settings or low settings or if we're using dynamic resolution scaling because it's not about the benchmark it's about actually getting a good experience out of the thing but at the same time i am curious you know obviously when you run a benchmark it's about putting it into context with other devices and gives you some measure of the horsepower that's available to developers so yeah i am interested from that perspective but i'm more interested in doing crazy stuff like well okay forza horizon 5 can i you know, can I play that on it? You know, will it be as good as Xbox One? Um, I think this. I think they were talking also about um, 30 FPS locks, and um, it was brought up on Twitter. And I did say to the uh, to the developer of the Steam Deck, look, if you're going to be doing 30 FPS, please, please do proper frame basing. Um, you know, similar to NVIDIA half rate refresh. So there's still a lot of question marks surrounding the, the Steam Deck. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to see one ahead of, ahead of launch. But I have got my pre-order in. I'm still curious about how they're going to do UI stuff. Like there's a apparently like uh, games can be rated as being suitable for Steam Deck. And one of those things has to do with font size. But there's a lot of games that probably will not be like sort of considered like Steam Deck approved. Uh, and, you know. There's a lot of PC games with pretty small text because you typically want that on a monitor. And uh, I'll be curious to see how this plays out, whether that ever becomes an issue. Like interface stuff could actually be too small in some cases. There could actually be Steam Deck mods from the community as well, which would be welcome, of course, for older titles that may not uh, get particular love from the developer. So, yeah, I mean, again, Hopefully, we'll get to see more of the Steam Deck. I still haven't gone hands-on, um, obviously, with the coronavirus restrictions. I couldn't go to Seattle to see it, which was a disappointment. Um, but at the same time, there are many decks out there now with developers. I think it seems to be open season for developers to be able to show their games running on Steam Deck uh, without performance numbers. We, so, we saw the um, Ascent running on there recently. Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite impressive. That impressed right? me because that's, that's not a light game. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, well, Steam Deck delayed. Disappointing, but the world moves on. 
Let's move on ourselves to the next topic. Well, I don't know what to say about this one. It's something we've been talking about literally for years. years. <laughs> um, it's the fact that Microsoft <laughs> is finally, finally going to update the Windows Store into something that has functionality more akin to a traditional storefront, uh, opening up games to uh, the users in a much more accessible way. And who knows? We might, I might actually be able to download a game on the Windows Store, which would be, which would be incredible. Alex, tell us all about this remarkable innovation. This remarkable innovation is something PCs have had since the dawn of time, the ability to edit the files on your own PC. It's crazy, I know, but you can actually do that. Uh, basically, this is just opening up the file structure. It seems like on, um, uh, on, on Windows Store games, I'm not sure if it's going to apply to applications yet, uh, since it seems to be going through an Xbox app now, and not necessarily the MS Store app. That seems like the difference in the future here. Uh, basically now it's like a hidden away file location that is uh, you don't have rights to actually edit. You have to like go into PowerShell and give yourself rights and all these things to edit it. And even then, I, I don't trust any of that. And there's a whole bunch of uh, issues regarding Game Pass games not installing correctly or deinstalling from your machine. Uh, those are also promising to be going away with this update. Um, I just find it interesting that it's only happening now, and I assume it's as a result of the pressure of Games Pass with a lot of complaints, uh, because, you know, we've been talking game, about it. Game Pass. Game Pass. Yeah. Whatever. People always get upset about the fact that, what, it's one okay. game? How many games do you get? One game? I don't think so. It's many games. Um, game Pass. Game Pass. Um, they have, yeah, Game Pass. <laughs> uh, I... I <laughs> I think I think we've been complaining about it for years. I mean, my first video that was publicly made available for DF complained about it. Um, John's video for, about Forza Horizon 3, which I don't remember when that came out, but I remember that complaining about it. That's yeah, also positive. Yep. Yeah, I was complaining about it back then too. So uh, I'm happy it's changing, but this is like completely necessary that it needs to change. And I guess I'm happy, but I wish it happened about like three or four years ago. Having transparency in terms of what a, an application is doing on your computer is really important, I think. And that's something I always felt like there was this obfuscation between the user and the PC with the Windows Store. Like you get this, there's a lot of things on there where you press buttons, you see the, the button click, nothing happens. You're not sure, did it register? Or you get error messages that are very like um, general, like something went wrong. Uh, or like a game's like, oh, I'm going to, there's a patch. It re-downloads the whole game. Now suddenly it takes double the space on your drive. But then the file system's locked because of the way the Windows Store works. And now you're losing a bunch of SSD space and you're like, what the heck's going on? It just requires so much uh, extra effort to manage it. So uh, I didn't really use it for that reason. Yeah, it all goes back to Windows 8 and Microsoft trying to launch their own app store. And since then, we've been lumbered with this horrific system that is the antithesis of everything that PC gaming is supposed to be about. And uh, yeah, you know, Forza Horizon 3, the only way I could actually get that to work on PC was to actually reinstall Windows because nothing, nothing I could do would make that game download. I had to reinstall Windows and then it worked. And there's still this thing where, you know, typically whenever I actually install something from the Windows Store, um, I always seem to have 10 
active PCs licensed and I have to de-license one of them. And uh, it's typically machines I don't use anymore. They were test machines or something, um, or they were tablets I bought in, you know, 2012 or something. But it's, you know, stop it. This doesn't, you know, get rid of the friction. Let me download and play a game. I've got the login credentials. Let me play the game. I mean, they really need to sort this out. I can't believe that it's that difficult. I mean, when did Windows 8 come out? It was years ago. And here we are still with this baggage. I mean, it sounds like they are finally doing that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well, fingers crossed, you know, that, you know, but the concepts that I can't download a game and I've had problems with it recently as well. You know, it's not, it's not a thing that's been solved. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully this will be sorted out. The other thing, of course, about it is that, you know, if Microsoft wants a games pass <laughs> to be, to be a pervasive platform that transcends Xbox, that transcends hardware. PC is crucial to this, crucial. And if it's a, uh, a poor user experience, then people are just going to get turned off. And it is the case where we've had people that just don't, um, that have had problems with the Windows Store version and have ended up buying it somewhere else. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Uh, okay, well, Fingers crossed that this will be finally resolved. So Weta Digital, Peter Jackson's outfit, uh, responsible for Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, all of that stuff, has been acquired by Unity. What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about that other than that. I mean, they're, they're, you know, a titan in the CG industry, I think. They've done a lot of great stuff over the years. I guess, I mean... I, I'm not entirely sure what they will bring to Unity per se, other than, you know, hopefully like working, doing something on their tool chain maybe to, to help create more, are they, are they getting into the film space now as well? Like, you know, Epic's been pushing Unreal Engine to be used in other industries, right? So I think that's basically, that's it. Yeah. I guess if, if that's the approach they want to take, this is, you know, that's probably a good partner to pick up yeah i think they were talking about weta having their own tools and stuff that they can bring in possibly to unity or i think it is all about evangelizing this engine as being more than just a game engine which is exactly what epic have done i mean we've seen um, unreal engine deployed in like the mandalorian and who knows what other uh, uh, sort of movie and tv franchises out there it's obviously a big deal and I guess the concept of marrying a game engine to something responsible for high-end CG, it's no longer a pipe dream, right? You know, I guess you can you can share those assets, you know, the stuff that Epic are doing. I mean, yeah, you can push these engines really far to the point where the games or whatever you're displaying is not really possible to run in real time anymore. So you're basically getting into that territory already. And for, you know, doing video editing stuff and like working with objects, Unreal seems very optimized for that. And in a way that some of the actual more professional packages sometimes are not. So I think people just like working with this. So it makes sense that Unity would also want to try to get in on that as well. Uh, and their user interface stuff has always been pretty good in terms of working with Unity itself. So uh, I'll be very curious to see where this leads. I do think there is a lot of work that actually needs to be done on the Unity renderer based on the developer chats I've been seeing about this move. It's kind of a lot of confusion about it when there's so much core work that needs to be done to the Unity renderer itself before it's capable of handling 
uh, this sort of scale of ambition, but I guess this is what it's all about, ambition and doing more with the engine. Okay, so we're going to move on to some DF content discussion. At the moment, we've literally just received uh, Grand Theft Auto Trilogy uh, Definitive Edition. And um, we're going to be looking through each of these titles one by one. We're starting with GTA 3 because, in theory, it's the game that's got the, you know, stands to benefit the most, right? And I think it's fair to say, I mean, John and I have been taking a look at this, and I think it is fair to say that um, the scale of disappointment here is astonishing. John? Yeah. Uh, the more you dig in, the more you start to find issues. And when when I wanted to do this project, my first thought was, this will be fun. I, I like GTA 3, sort of a retro-focused project. But then you start to play it, and you realize that there's a lot of issues with this thing. And there's so many, in fact, that I don't think that we could conceivably talk about all of them in a video. Uh, I think this is something that the community is going to be breaking open for a long time. <laughs> uh, but basically what we have here is these, these games are... They were originally PlayStation 2 games running in renderware. That's what they were built in. They've been ported around multiple times. PC, Xbox, whatever. Then in 2011 or so maybe 2010 sometime in that period they were brought to mobile phones by this company i guess grove street games did it which is also the company that developed this so they seem to have started from the mobile ports which already had noticeable bugs and issues uh and then they ported it to unreal engine and have sort of rebuilt the games in unreal engine and Unreal, so you get a lot of the benefits of Unreal Engine. You get all its, you know, effects pipeline. You get the, the atmospheric effects, motion blur, all that stuff. Uh, that's all there. But then you have these, it looks like they started with a lot of the old base assets and they did a lot of AI upscaling on textures. Uh, they, they remodeled things in a strange way to try to add more detail. And what you've ended up with is this thing that looks extremely it's it's like it's conflicting to look at is the only way like it, it's both old and modern at the same time and it doesn't really adhere to the original style in a way that i find all that appealing it has the feeling of one of those when you see somebody post on youtube a, a video of mario or photorealistic mario running around a grass field and everybody's like hire this man nintendo uh that's the feeling you it's the vibe i get from it and then so but that that's a that's 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 something i'll be comparing this to playstation 2 in its original form and we can talk about the different visual changes because like them or not they are interesting and some are some are cool the bigger problem though here is that i am shocked that this has pretty serious performance problems on every platform some worse than others i've mostly focused first on the higher end platforms like xbox series x and when you're having frame rates drop into the 30s on a game that looks like this, it is, it is baffling. I, I, you just put the controller down, you walk away, and you're just like, what's going on here? Uh, something is off. And that's the feeling I got here. There's visual bugs. There's performance issues. Uh, the, the, the controls are weird and changed in ways that I'm not loving. Uh, cops and other things feel way more aggressive and frustrating to control or deal with compared to the PlayStation two version, which I was alternating between uh, the whole thing is just, and this is, I, I could talk for like three hours on this to really 
there's so much to say here, but the gist is that it's just, it's strange. It doesn't run right. I'm confused by what happened and it does feel like a project that probably didn't have the, the scope was too large for whatever time and budget that was allotted for this. But Richard, you've actually been playing on, on older consoles, right? And have found some things that are perhaps a little worse than I did. Well, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, we're talking about a PlayStation 2 game here, right? And we're now we're now on PlayStation 5. So, you know, there's been one, two, three generational leaps here. And yet the game is has performance issues and um, it doesn't look great. There are certain points... I mean, I've played it on... So far, I've played it on 1, 1X one and Series S. Playing on Series S, um, it has uh, performance and fidelity modes. In performance mode things kind of start to gel together in certain areas where you see the benefits of the new artwork and it doesn't look hideous. Where you have this uh, super smooth 60 frames per second frame rate, you seem to have a pretty good draw distance. Um, The world seems to be more populated and you do get the idea that um, car models and such like have been upgraded in a way that they are sort of Um, I wouldn't say high poly, but they have a certain CG, a sort of 90s CG cartoon style to them. You're right. The the cars look okay. You're right. Yeah. It kind of works in that perspective, right? But on Series S, I've had the game running in performance mode under 30 frames per second, right? So, you know, the Series S, it isn't the best of the best, but, you know, it's a reasonable it can certainly handle GTA 3, let's put it that way. So, you know, if the Series S is having problems, then we're looking at some uh, seriously deficient code here. There's no other way of saying it. But I started by looking at Xbox One and Xbox One X. Xbox One is, it can go under 20 frames per second in certain scenarios. Basically, if you're in at night with a lot of uh, cars, well, I say a lot, you know, a reasonable amount of cars on screen, then the frame rate just collapses. And there's all manner of visual artifacts, um, but just the sheer uh, variance in performance. The frame rate is totally unlocked on 1 and 1X. And again, we're going to need to check this, but it seems to me that the city is less dense and less detailed than it is on the Series S. So it doesn't look as though you're getting that much of an upgrade at all. And then there is the fact that the quality of the artwork is questionable. Um, They're talking a lot in this uh, article that went out on USA Today about um, AI upscaling. And um, yeah, yeah, which is a a topic we've got to talk about because, I mean, you can't base a remaster on AI upscaling because um, it's not, it needs... It needs hand tooling to, I mean, by all means, use AI upscaling as the basis. But when you've got AI upscaling artifacts that are so visible in the presentation, it just gives the impression that no care and attention has gone into it. There's a lot of text in the game on signs and such where there's like crazy typos, uh, which seem to have been born out of doing AI upscaling on the source material. And you just end up with like gibberish like random letters and even the ones that are sharper it's just like replacing like r's with b's and other strange things that you're like what is going on here this is it's very weird uh and but really it's just 
the thing about that original game is that it was very clearly designed for that era, right? You look at NPC models, they're very sparse. They're not detailed looking, but you can tell the artists crafted them very specifically with the polygons they did have available. And they have this stylized look that kind of just gels with the artwork and the overall look of the game. Uh, you look at the modern characters, I said this to you guys, but not to say that this is, has anything to do with what they did, but the impression you get is it's like they took the model and clicked some sort of like magical tessellate this button and AI upscale this. And you just get this like weird thing that's all rounded and bulbous and the textures are strange looking. And then you start looking at some of the background details. And to me, this almost feels like a game at times that was literally generated by AI. There's <laughs> something like... I don't know. It's, it's, it has a strange, it feels weird to me to play it. It's given me an uneasy feeling that I can't say I've really felt with a game before. Like it's hard to explain, but this is something I'm familiar with. And you play this and it's like, it's like, am I actually awake now? Is this a real thing? Like what's, I don't know. I, I, I never felt that before with a, with a game release, but it doesn't feel comfortable somehow. It's very strange. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that there's so much in there that's old that the new stuff just feels somewhat weird. So, you know, there's not really that much. No real attention has gone into adding detail um, over and above, you know, smoothing out edges and adding these bizarre new textures. Uh, the physics model is kind of bizarre for, for a modern release. Uh, you know, the driving model is it, in GTA 3, it's, it's dated. I guess the question is, you know, what you know i guess the question is how are you go how would you go about doing a remaster slash remake and i've been thinking about this if we think back to um like the shadow of the colossus re uh, remaster on playstation 3 that blue point handled and then we had shadow of the colossus again uh, on playstation 4 by blue point you can see there there's a very specific uh and carefully handled upgrade stroke remake path for that game across the generations to the point where it was so good on PlayStation 4 that it still holds up even now if you run it on PlayStation 5 you know add in a resolution upgrade and you've got a great PlayStation you know PlayStation 5 version there I'm not seeing any kind of care and attention uh, given to this they've taken the original game um, a sub-optimal version of the original game because it's basically a mobile port and they've just sort of tried to upgrade the, the graphics, I guess. There's there's no, I guess the, the point is there's no vision, right? A lot of the issues with the original game kind of work in the context of the original game, given how it looks and, and the time period it comes out. It gels together into something that feels coherent, even if flawed. Uh, but when you have some of those flaws contrasted against this new stuff, it just creates this strange mismatch that doesn't feel really complete polished or anything. And the fact that on top of that, it runs so poorly, uh, the fact that it even needs a quality and performance mode at all is kind of baffling to me for a game like this. I mean, I know it's unreal engine, uh, which is obviously going to be a lot heavier technically, but you know, it's just it's not like this. Well, know. that's the thing, right? <laughs> because like um, uh, we had this Nvidia presentation the other day, and uh, it was like, hey, GTA Definitive Edition is getting DLSS. 
It was I was like, I was like yeah, why? That's, that's up there with uh, Star Trek V, where uh, Kirk says, why, why does God need a starship? It's like, why does GTA Definitive Edition need DLSS? So when you play it on Series X, you kind of realize yeah. <laughs> maybe it does need DLSS. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious. I wonder if the PC version has Unreal Engine Stutter, because a lot of UE4 games still have that. Uh the thing is, so thinking about what I would have liked to have seen is I actually think, well, da- GTA 3 was not a beautiful game when it was released, right? Like contrast against other PS2 games of that time, but it has a look, it has a style to it. It's not bad. It, it's interesting. I think sticking with that original look, but solving a lot of the rendering limitations of the era would be great. For instance, running everything at full lods all the time, the whole city is drawn you know, pushing everything out as far as you can at a higher resolution, just like here's the original game, but shined up to perfection, you know, go back and touch up things like uh, the UI, you know, high res fonts and menus, which they did by the way, but with the old graphics, that would have been interesting. Um, That's what I would have liked to have seen, or, you know, it's not like we haven't seen this kind of thing before, right? Like last year we had that surprise with Saints Row the Third which got that remaster and shocking everyone that remaster was really good. And saints for the third is not a small game. It is also a large open world game, more complex than any of the, well, maybe not San Andreas. That's a, that's something else, but you know, it's just, I would have expected at least that level of competency here. Right. I mean, this is Rockstar. I mean, they've got virtually infinite budgets here. And I think if they had split these games, not, not release them as a triple pack, you know, actually put time and effort into doing a proper remaster slash remake of each game. I mean, I guess the dream would be that you would remake the entire game in the latest Rage Engine, right? A bit much, maybe. Maybe (laughs) it is, but, you know, you look at what happened with with other games and it's not beyond the realms of possibility, right? It's just so weird because you look at, like, the original games that Rockstar's put out. They don't put out many these days, but when they do, like, Red Dead Redemption 2 is an incredible-looking game. It was so polished. Some people have issues with it, and I get that, but what they did there technically was unbelievable. There was an attention to detail in that game that you just don't see in a lot of others, and I wouldn't necessarily expect that level of detail in something like this but to go from that to release a product like this especially on your prestige brand it's i don't get it i am utterly baffled by the whole situation and we haven't even started to look at vice city and san andreas yet that's the the crazy thing you know we will be looking at each game in turn probably not with the same level of um, meticulous attention to detail that we're doing on gta 3 but man this is this is crazy stuff i already can say i don't think i'm gonna be a, like there's so much to look at here like we're gonna present our view of a certain subset of what's going on with this game but there's so much that i think you could have like 30 people make all make unique videos on this thing and they would all find different issues <laughs> i've seen lists floating around already of some of the issues that people have found and i mean it's like literally pages so i mean the scary thing is is that you know gta 3 is the least advanced title of the the trilogy the other one kind of san andreas especially yeah wow uh this week it came out of nowhere i didn't even know it was going to happen um alex just put up a quick vlog uh which was just talking about his ssd uh front loading slot system which enables him to quickly uh, switch between operating systems 
uh, on a retro PC. I was quite fascinated by that. Yeah, so the idea behind this is uh, um, semi-regular, uh, irregular, maybe you may call it, updates about what I'm doing uh, with my retro stuff behind the scene, maybe a game I've installed and issues I'm having with it or something like that to just to give a little bit more insight into the non uh, like always dedicated channel work behind the scenes and uploading that to my uh, YouTube channel and uh, sharing it with our Patreon supporters who I got a lot of really good feedback on it. I got some uh, um, basically on like how I could produce those videos in the future. Also some feedback from people who work on you know uh, retro PCs themselves and gave me tips and hints about uh, like specifically like what kind of things you need to look out for when building uh, specific things into a retro PC. One thing, John, that you also probably need to look out for and you wouldn't think about it too much is the the heat generated between all the stuff in the PCI and the AGP. I don't know. I don't actually have a fan sitting right there, but I was told that it gets incredibly hot even in older PCs. Uh, so that's one thing I'm going to be looking out oh, for yeah, in the it, future. It, it definitely <laughs> can. A lot of those things don't have fans installed. Yeah, they're not active. Although, they're all passive. I think the um, I'm using a GeForce 1 in there as my main card. That does have a fan on it. But yeah, the Voodoo 2 definitely heats up. <laughs> uh, but stuff like that. So that's something you can uh, expect if you're a Patreon backer. I'm going to definitely try and update some stuff. And it won't always be focused on that exact same retro PC because I have a bunch of them. But, you know. I think if there's just anything vaguely interesting that's happening that you want to share, you know, just um, open your camera app and uh, and record it and share it because it's actually just sort of interesting to get a, a quick snapshot into stuff that's just happening. Right. I think I found it quite interesting, certainly. Uh, also, something that I did this week was a uh, more sort of detailed 20 minute video about um, all of the Forza Horizon 5 stuff that we've done, uh, talking a bit more about the studio visit, um, how I constructed the multi-platform analysis, a uh, quick look at the Adobe Premiere Pro timeline to see exactly what material we had to work with, how we assembled the edit, various assets. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to basically um, open the doors a bit more and show you more of what's going on behind the scenes at, at DF. Uh, but something I do want to point out, and we said it before as well, is that um, when you do join up, every supporter gets access to our Discord. And this community that we've got there is um, um, it's like a, a sort of uh, Borg style in a good way. <laughs> Hive mind of enthusiasts and knowledge and helpfulness and positivity that is simply remarkable, that's that's transformed what we're doing and um, made us so much happier in the process. So yes, by all means, do get, uh, get involved. And also when the channel went uh, down on YouTube, we actually had a bit of a resurgence in Patreon supporters, which is also gratifying actually. So yeah, thanks, thanks to everybody who, who jumped in. Really appreciate it. For retro supporters, the first 13 minutes of the Splatterhouse video is done. Uh, so I, I have a test version. Alex saw it. I already so watched it. it. It's great it's, so far. I had to put it down for the moment to work on Grand Theft Auto and I'm delayed a little bit more because of the whole hack thing, but, uh, it should be good. Yeah. It's uh, really good stuff. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And also, um, we want to get more, uh, some of the stuff that Alex does with his retro PC. We want to sort of integrate that into DF retro uh, get a bit more DF into DF retro, that's what I say. And uh, stuff like uh, the time capsule PC. Because we both have a lot of retro PC stuff. I feel like there's there's some kind of gap there to just retro PC related something uh, that we've got we to gotta think about because I love that stuff too.
you know, I think just the concept of um, maybe sharing how you built these machines would be a, would be good uh, hashtag content. And, um, you know, stuff like the uh, the sort of best machines to, to tie. I mean, there are, I mean, if we talk about like uh, your 8800 GT machine, that was like a 50 euro Dell from, uh, from eBay. So maybe there is sort of like, you know, uh, key builds for specific time periods. John knows a lot about that. <laughs> so I've also found that, you know, like 2005 era stuff is still quite cheap. Uh, but once you get to 2000 and earlier, uh, prices really start have started to go way up on a lot of the more obscure hardware, especially. Uh, I have a pretty good collection now. I think I have just about every classic 90s graphics card I could want, including the obscure stuff now. But it was really hard to get some of that stuff. And also there's things like motherboard choice that's really important because there's a very specific there's a there's a small sliver of motherboards that offer the perfect balance of legacy support as well as supporting the more powerful like Pentium 3s and such. And if you don't find that right balance, you're gonna not be able to use certain features, you have more issues with DOS, you know. There's a whole minefield of things to run into. Uh and it's fun though. It's fun going through that. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of like a rich vein of uh, potential material that we can use to beef up DF Retro still further. I mean, stuff like Alex's time capsule PC uh, uh, comparisons, we haven't really flagged that as Retro, but I think it definitely is. So we should we should definitely do that. But yeah, good stuff. Join us. I think that's the big message. Anyway, let's move on to um, Patreon supporter Q and A. Uh, interesting question here, number one from Edwin Crump. Nearly a year in, what do you think of the Series S experiments? Considering situations like Tom's finding in Guardians of the Galaxy and even FH5, where the One X can be better visually than its newer sibling, has the Series S picked up where the One X laid down? Uh, before I go to you guys on this, um, I have seen some sales figures for Series X and Series S. And uh, let's just say that the split between those two machines um, is is quite surprising. There's a lot more Series S's out there than you may imagine. Um, but I think before we go maybe to you on this one, John, I don't think the Series S was designed to pick up where the One X laid off, right? It's not. I mean, it's a. They told us that from the beginning, talking to Microsoft, like this. What their goal wasn't just to like make another One X. Uh, you know, because the One X does have some advantages over the Series S, right? We know that. But the Series S has other advantages that I think are more key to ensuring it can at least run reduced versions of modern games correctly. Like, I think the CPU and storage limitations on Xbox One X means that there's a certain point where things are just not going to work well uh, or be feasible on that machine. And the Series S can handle that. So most of it's compromise to things like memory and GPU power uh, usually just translates to a lower resolutions, I would say. And that's kind of what we've been seeing so far, by and large. Um, uh, I think the only real limitation I think we've said from the beginning is that the, the memory situation is perhaps not optimal on Series S in that it does make things like ray tracing slightly more difficult to actually pull off on that machine. But by and large, it seems pretty solid. And I think... So he mentioned Tom's findings for Guardians of the Galaxy. And that one's really unique because in that case, uh, that game shipped with a, an uncapped frame rate on Series S. So it was targeting 60 frames per second at 1080p, 
whereas one X was always about higher res, but 30 FPS. And then on the day one patch, they capped series S to 30 and we're still not clear what's going on there. And the fact that they've also said that, oh yeah, we're planning to put ray tracing support in, in the new console versions and there's other changes coming. Uh, it sounds like those modes came in a little bit hot and that series S is probably um, a little bit lower than you might've expected if they were originally planning that to be just an uncapped frame rate anyway. So I, and also that game is, is quite heavy. Like the Dawn engine is not a light engine. So um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge too much from that really. Yeah. Xbox one X did have a much higher resolution, but it did also have um, storage related problems uh, in guardians of the galaxy and also um, lower geometry and stuff like that. So, you know, I, here's the thing, right? 1S is the predecessor to Series S. I think that's something that we need to stress. Secondly, uh, Series S, I think it's perfectly fine to be targeting lower resolutions. Um, I don't think it should be aiming for 4K. I'm kind of still on the fence about whether it should be aiming for 1440p, to be honest. Um, and if we're talking about Forza Horizon 5 uh, looking better visually, um, it's got a higher resolution if you're comparing the 30 FPS modes, but the 30 FPS mode on Series S may have a lower resolution, but it looks a ton better. And it's got a 60 FPS mode. And it loads I, quickly, like which is yes, the most important thing. Absolutely. You know? The, you know, I, I compared all of the versions of Forza Horizon 5, and I wouldn't want to pay it play on a one on an Xbox One or an Xbox One X console. Not because the graphics are bad as such, but simply because of the amount of friction in going in and out of events and um yeah it's uh, and the pop-in was was kind of more more noticeable on those systems as well so yeah i mean i do think there is actually a really good discussion to be had here about the consoles one year in because i don't think we're where we would ideally have wanted to be but we are where we are simply because of market conditions um but yeah this is maybe i mean what we want to do maybe we should throw this open as a uh a discussion point uh, to supporters and others is, you know, we want to do a series of special directs for where we're away on holiday over Christmas. And um, these would concentrate on single topics. And I think, you know, where we are one year after the launch of the new consoles is actually a really good discussion topic. Um, absolutely. I would love to see a, a Series S like accessory that's like a high-end mountable small OLED screen that you just attach to the Series S. It's got HDR, it's 1080p, so it more closely matches the output of the system. I think that would make it a re and just with the size of it, it would be a really cool little like portable machine. The only issue I could see is I guess if you close the lid on it, uh, you know, there's that vent on top that spews out tons and tons of heat. Uh, they'd have to be careful about like, oh, okay, I, you, you play for an hour, hit power, close the lid. Uh, that thing takes some time to cool down and, you know, so it's clearly not meant for that, but it would make a really cool little machine, like a pseudo portable, if you, if you will. I'd love to see that. Uh, but you know, the, the, the dream for me is still a series S laptop, uh, which has dual, dual, dual boot into windows or Xbox. Yeah, that, that would actually be really cool i agree absolutely so this question is from a guy with the, the hacker alias of gluten-free potato glutton <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's not quite up there with agonizing rectal pain, but it's close. Uh, Forza Horizon 5 seems like an excellent candidate for the inclusion of a 40 FPS, 120 hertz mode. Um, as it appears, many Series X console gamers are choosing to play in quality mode over performance. Would this be difficult for developers to implement? Alternatively, would an uncapped frame rate plus VRR approach achieve similar results of graphical preservation? Why or why not, John? So this is really interesting, actually. And I, I think a game like that would actually be a perfect candidate for 40 frames per second. Uh, but I've I've mentioned, you know, Insomniac did this with Ratchet and & Clank, and it was a very, very cool option that works very well. And But I've talked to a lot of other developers, and there's still a lot of almost confusion around or like it's not so much confusion but I, I feel like a lot of people just haven't actually really thought about it or why it makes sense here uh so hopefully you know in time more will start to realize like oh this is a pretty viable smart way to do things to to get a you know you have more budget per frame but you get a slightly smoother experience uh, but VRR, though, I don't think you want to lean on VRR when the frame rate is under, say, if your frame rate's often under 45, we'll say, uh, VRR is is not the best thing. Like, it, it's still helpful, but you will absolutely feel it still. Um, I think VRR is best if you're over 45 on average and you're in that 45 to 60 or higher range, then it actually works really effectively. Um, and I can definitely say that that would be an optimal thing to have, but... If, if you can't do that, then I think the 40 frames per second option would have been great. And that would have, you know, Forza is a perfect example of where that would have really paid off, I think. Well, let's talk quickly about why it happened in um, uh, Ratchet and Clank. Similar, I guess, simply because they had some overhead. They could actually run the game above 30 frames per second. If you're at 120 hertz, a 40 FPS game updates evenly with every three screen refreshes. So it looks consistent you get massive input lag advantages. In terms of frame times, 40 FPS sits between 30 FPS and 60 FPS. So it's kind of like an exact midway halfway point. Yeah, that's the thing. Where, when, you, when you look at it on paper, it doesn't seem like that big of a jump, but it's yeah. exactly right in the middle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's more like what you would imagine 45 FPS to be, yes, essentially. Exactly. But it's not, it's 40. Um, and they also had DRS to lean on. Um, so, you know, if they weren't able to maintain 4K, they could drop down to, you know, minimum 1800p, I think. And uh, it, owing to the graphical presentation in Ratchet, it still looked great. I think things are a little different with uh, Forza because they don't want to lean so much into uh, DRS. They, they don't have, have TAA. They, they, they do have it. Yeah. So as to how much overhead they actually have, we kind of just don't know, right? There's some slight implications, though, from the PC version that they maybe have enough for it. Just like the, just the fact that you know you get some, you get close to that Series X experience on like a 2060 Super, in terms of locking to 30. But you imagine at that point in your mind that the Series X has the overhead above that. And one last thing I want to say about that is that on the PC version, if you do output at 120 hertz, the in-game Frame rate locker, which only works if you have VSYNCON, by the way, uh, it goes on intervals. And if you have at 120 hertz, 40 is one of those intervals, by the way. I noticed that I ran it at 160 hertz on my monitor here, and it had an 80 hertz option or 80 FPS option, which actually turned out to be uh, a good choice. 
that works really well. Maybe they will do something there. I don't know. I guess the other thing to bear in mind is that they also have a vast array of um, performance testing to do to ensure that you do actually get um, a perfectly locked 40 experience, which would be quite difficult for them to do, but not impossible, I think. Okay, let's move on to a related question. Uh, no hilarious hacker alias this time around. Alpha54 asks, is there any advantage to using my Xbox in 120 hertz mode outside of games that support 120 FPS? Is there any advantage to a 60 FPS game running on a 120 hertz panel, whether latency, VRR related or otherwise? I'm curious specifically because, because I play most games at 60 and Dolby Vision game mode works great at 60 hertz, but has lots of banding at 120, which I understand to be an HDMI hardware limitation. We should see lower latency, right? Yeah, if it's triple buffered, you'll see one, like you'll see like the half, like the halfing respectively for the latency stack there. Because when I looked at Ratchet and Clank um, for the 40 FPS mode, I actually measured input lag for the performance RT mode in 60 and 120, and the lag was lower. The input lag is more responsive if you were running the 60 Hertz mode in 120 Hertz. So I do think there are advantages there. Similarly, let's say you've got a V-Sync game and uh, you drop a frame. Your frame drop will ask for 8.3 milliseconds rather than 16.7. So there are advantages there. Uh, the thing that I'm curious about here is when he's talking about the banding, because I'm not- I've Never heard of that. Of yeah, that's the one I don't know about. Uh, that seems more like a configuration error. There should not be a lot of banding at a 120 Hertz. Uh, although I don't, again, I don't know what hardware specifically is being used here. So usually when you see banding in HDR, it means that the, the thing is dropped back down to eight bits per channel and instead of 10 or 12, and you basically don't have enough colors. And so you do get that banding. So, uh, but I, I know for sure that 120 Hertz Dolby vision does work fine on the LG CX at least and C1, uh, and it doesn't have banding. Uh, but to get back to the, the, the first part of the question, actually, there is actually something to say about this, and this is going to vary depending on your use case. So I, I've professed my love of using black frame insertion for a long time. I love it. I think it's great. But it depends on the game, especially for like a side-scrolling 60 frames per second game or something with a lot of like camera motion where you're constantly turning and there's not motion blur. Um, I find that if you play a 60 hertz game at 120 hertz, uh, you're essentially getting, because it's every other frame that it updates, you get that same double image effect that you get at 30 frames per second on a 60 hertz screen, right? It's just that normally with a sample and hold display, uh, it's slow enough that it kind of blurs that together so you don't notice. But if you run with black frame insertion, which smooth, you know, basically eliminates motion blur, uh, suddenly you see that and everything has this double double image effect that looks pretty bad, I think. so. I find that I toggle 120 hertz on or off depending on the content I'm using. So if it's a if it's a 60 hertz game with a lot of motion blur or something, then it's fine. I can I can use it with 120. Uh, but for you know if you're playing a side scrolling platform game or something like Resident Evil Village, which has lots of camera rotation but no motion blur on the camera, uh, it's a blur fest and a double or a double image fest if you play 120. Or without black frame insertion but if you do 60 hertz output with black frame insertion on one of those you get i've showed i showed this to you alex you see it's like perfect motion basically it looks really really good um so that's the one caveat and that's why 
I, I find myself changing it back and forth often. It's, it's a per content thing, which I kind of wish there was some sort of, um, toggle on the Xbox to say like only initiate 120 Hertz output when a game asks for 120 Hertz. You know what I mean? Cause I want that for 120 Hertz games, but I don't usually want it for 60 Hertz games. I guess the thing to look for, there would be a profile system that you can set up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, move on to the next question from King Penumbra. And uh, his question is this. Good one for Alex, I believe. I'm really hoping Forza Horizon 5 gets DLSS. Would this work well? And could their MSAA work with it as well? Also, what are your opinions on the in-game radio? There's there's probably two opinions about this. I actually think the motion in the game, which is primarily like just like driving straight and turning the camera, is not too bad for like the center. Like let's say there's like a circle there of the screen. It's probably really great for DLS at, at this angle. But then as you get out towards the free screen fringes and the distance between, say you're going like, you know, like 200 kph, uh, like the tree could be here at one point of the screen and another like right here. It could be like within the fr span of one frame, it could move really quickly across the screen. Uh, temporal solutions like DLSS partially uses could have trouble with that. But we haven't really seen it so often yet. And the one game we saw it in had a really bad implementation, in my opinion. It was F1 or whatever, um, which had like even just like basic things ghosting that shouldn't have been. So that one wasn't a very good test point. I think uh, it could and should work. I don't see any reason why um, it couldn't, why it wouldn't work with MSAA. I know they say you should have a jittered aliased uh, frame for combining into the future, but I don't think it needs to be completely aliased because there's already aspects of a frame that have, uh, you know, like pre-integrated super sampling attached to them. That's what MIPS are. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I think it should work with MSAA. Uh, I really wish they do that though, because I think the game on PC right now, when you play it at like a normal monitor distance, and you're not playing at 4K. I think if you're playing at like 1440p or 1080p, you're seeing this even worse than I'm seeing it usually, like where people are just like, this image quality in this game is terrible. That's what a lot of the opinion on the internet is about Forza Horizon on PC. They, people don't like the image quality at all. Uh, so I think that would be a thing to try out and it could work really well with the RT that the game, I assume, will eventually support in an official capacity. Yeah. Personally, I want DLA, DLAA in there. Yeah, that I would be nice too. That yeah. would be perfect yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, about the in-game radio alex is there a berlin discotheque channel there is uh, i don't know i've i've been going through that radio when playing the game because i just find it like the default musical choice it's it's so weird it, it, it like i think the menu music in the game is nice like i'm like oh this is great this gives me uh flight sim vibes uh but then in game it's just like not that vibe to say the least. Uh, so I don't think I found any music in the game so far that uh, that I can really tolerate. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> it, was, it was a damning indictment. Uh, yeah. Okay, next question from uh, Kilkia123. I've noticed CPUs are often tested at or around 1080p high settings these days, which can be a good measure of performance in the here and now for a common setup for many gamers, but are we missing the longevity aspects of CPUs in reviews? What happens in next year or in two to five years when more powerful GPUs are available and reduce bottlenecking, GPU bottlenecking of these CPUs? Should we see a return 
to 720p CPU testing and the like? Well, this is an interesting question, right, Alex? Because um, uh, the likes of uh, you know the sort of hardcore PC um, benchmarking sites, they go for 720p. If you look at the stuff that's being done by Capframe X, 720p. Uh, the argument being that there is a GPU bottleneck and um, by going to 720p, you remove it. However, if you're at 1080p, then you are reflecting a more frequent use case, which is that, you know, people want to have high frame rate gaming on a 1080p screen, which, you know, you could go up to 240 FPS with that. Um, so it's an interesting question. I think my point to all of this is, can you actually be GPU bound at, um, with an RTX 3090, which is what we used in our review, um, but 1080p, I don't know. I mean, you typically tend to do 540p and 720p, right? I do, uh, yeah, mainly because, well, I mean, I just want to be perfectly certain that at any point that it, there is just no chance of that GPU getting in the way. Um, are you really going to be usually GPU limited uh, 1080p, that's a hard one. I think not usually. I'd say like 80% of the time it's not. Uh, definitely not because if you, like games don't run as fast, like modern games don't run as fast as CSGO. Like, like let's just put that out there. A lot of, you know, like benchmarking focuses on like your CSGOs and your whatevers, uh, like that competitive style game, your Dota 2s uh, that run at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of frames per second uh most games don't and they like stop there's like 110 to 160 fps and usually 1080p is good enough for that um i guess the thing is if with infinite time you would have a 720p a 1080p and all the rest but you have to pick and choose your editorial decisions yeah i mean will does our cpu benchmarking he does 1080p 1440p and 4k and we do it with a rtx 3090 now which is i think a pretty broad spread of actual um sort of uh relative ratios between cpu and gpu power so you know uh whatever 4k with a 3090 is probably uh faster than 1060 at 1080p if you see what i mean so yeah, there's there's you know we're trying to get a sort of more balanced range there of of how things do actually perform in a range of games, but I guess the ultimate arbiter is simply to go as low resolution as you can. But the thing that I find there is that this actually introduces a lot more stutter than you would actually find in an in an actual gaming scenario where you are mostly GPU bound but occasionally CPU bound. So it's I just don't. I don't know, CPU benchmarking and reviewing, it's really, really difficult. But typically it does come down to, you know, basically the faster it is, the better really, isn't it? Yeah. So like in the Forza Horizon video, if you watch it uh, that I did, if you look at the frame time graph in the section where I'm putting the 10900K next to the Ryzen 5, you know, R5 3600, and Rich pointed this out, like the, the frame times on the 3600 are actually really, really poor. But the thing is, we emphasize always going for a consistent experience so that if you locked your frame rate there at 60 through external means or using the in-game v-sync or lock and things like that you're actually barely noticing any of that inconsistency uh which is what we want to talk about anyways i guess it's there is the academic discussion though about uh the frame to health at like ultra high frame rates 
which is good, but it doesn't apply to like mainstream configs for a lot of games, I feel. Yeah, it's a difficult one. It, I mean, it's really easy to review a GPU. You give it a certain workload and, um, and compare because you are typically always GPU limited. And because one frame is typically similar to the, to, to the next one, you tend to get consistent frame times. And if you don't, that means there's something seriously bad, either with the title or with the driver. So that's easy. CPU side of things, you do have this academic scenario where you basically want to remove the GPU uh, as a bottleneck entirely. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of want to reflect the way that the CPU is actually going to be used, which is difficult to do when you've got an infinite number of configuration points. Uh, so this is why we settled on using a high-end GPU at 1080p, 1440p, and, and 4K. Uh, but at 720p, I mean, it would add to the workload significantly, but you know, it could be done, I guess. Um, final question, Anthony Alloy. Does the team perceive ARM architecture as a viable option for future console generations, given Apple's commitment to the technology is starting to deliver some impressive performance? Understandably, it isn't well supported, especially when we consider the Windows environment, but surely its potential and green credentials could change this. John? It's always a potential option. I mean, it's already they're already using this in the Switch, right? Um, so I think the one benefit, though, to sticking with x86 at the moment is that they currently have this sort of synergy between PC and console space that ensures that developers can easily bring their projects over to the PC without dealing with any of those CPU incompatibilities. And for that reason, I, I find it difficult to imagine them wanting to shift at this point just because of that. Cause I do think the PC is important enough. It's just X86 is still the standard. So, uh, obviously Nintendo always plays in their own sandbox. So, uh, it kind of makes a lot of sense for them, especially targeting a mobile system like the switch, but the other ones, I don't know. I mean, Microsoft, I don't see it, <laughs> obviously. And Sony's obviously now getting more into the PC space as well. So I don't know. I think x86 is here to stay for the foreseeable future, but you never know. Well, there is the point, Alex, when you look at Alder Lake on PC, that they are actually aiming for this kind of efficiency drive, a similar sort of um, big, big little approach that, that Apple have done, right? I think it's uh, Alder Lake is like the first gen of this. So we'll have to see that of how it evolves over time, but it's definitely a direction the company's going in. And I definitely think we're gonna see more efficiency takes on x86 over time as well too. Uh, because, you know, if you look at Alder Lake's highest uh, performance states, when it is, you know, like dropping out like a huge HEVC video, it gets pretty high up there, but that's not the average, everyday user case. And it's definitely not the one that a game console would be doing. Uh, it's not going to be fully, uh, you know, th uh, uh, thermal limited. You know, that's the whole point of the PlayStation 5 uh, to not reach this state or like not reach the thermal limit state, but reach the power limit state. Um, so... I don't also see it happening for um, Microsoft and Sony because they have such a good thing going with AMD and AMD is not in that space at all. And I don't see why they would be in five to 10 years also. Um, so I don't think so for them. This, this does remind me of a conversation I had with Mark Cerny for the PS4 Pro where um, my question to him was, Basically, if you want this compatibility layer, then you're going to need to always be wedded to AMD, right? Because um, it's the 
the best way forward, but it does mean that you're limited to AMD's um, technological progress. And at, the, at that point, things were looking uh, not so great for, for AMD from that regard, certainly in the GPU space. But we've seen with Ryzen, and we've seen uh, promising signs with RDNA too, that they do have a really impressive road, roadmap going forward. So I'm not really too worried about that. And again, you look at what is happening with Alder Lake and um, just the general drive towards efficiency. If the if the idea is um, performance per watt, then you know it all starts really with the server stack, right? Where that is of crucial importance. And then it all sort of trickles down into the consumer space. I think the thing with Alder Lake is that they're still pumping as much power as possible through the chips on the K side. So uh, to, to actually get ultimate performance, but I'm going to be really interested to see the lower end chips that do have like a 65 watt limit and then the laptop chips. I mean, this is where Intel actually makes their money in terms of commercial uh, consumer um, CPUs. It's all about the laptops. So actually seeing how Alder Lake scales down with like, you know, 15 watt, even five watt budgets in potentially, that's really where we're going to see whether they can take the fight to Apple. I think that's kind of covered that one, right? Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Okay, well, that's it. That's our show. Um, please do like, subscribe, share. If you enjoyed the work, ring the bell, of course, for those notionally instant notifications. DF supporter program. Just going to say again how awesome it is. Join us. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Stop it.